Purpose Highway is a space for discussions that drive connections toward people's highest purpose to build a better self and a better world. Join me for season one, where I start to uncover stories of entrepreneurs and thinkers that are making an impact. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. It is Scott Mason revving up for another trip down the Purpose Highway, and I've got sitting in the front seat right next to me, Karen Ripley. Karen is a comedian, and she has been a comedian since 1977. She also writes for both the stage and the screen. Karen's history is impressive. She's performed with Whoopi Goldberg. She's open for Will Durst and, and Judy Tenuta. She um, has she won the Ms. Magazine Top Lesbian Comic in the U.S. Award. And she has been on television shows and traveled throughout the United States uh, doing various routines. Karen, it is an honor and a pleasure having you with us here today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Scott. Let me correct one thing, honey. Please. I'm not the top uh, at Ms. Magazine comedian. There were about 100 of us. <laughs> well, you know what? One of the top. Well, I love your modesty. And uh, you know what? You're always going to be the top for this audience, so... <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. I appreciate. Thanks for having me. It's it's been it's been great. You know, I'm going to go right to the subject matter of this podcast today for the first question, and and dive right into um, it as connected to you. As I mentioned earlier, you are a comedian, but has comedy and being funny always been your purpose? And if so, when and how did you discover that? Oh my God, it has been. I was probably about five, and I saw I Love Lucy, and I thought, I want her job. And I was a funny little kid, and friends in school used to say, when you become a famous comedian, don't forget Aww. me, and I'd be, yeah, yeah. And I just was a nut. Um, and I just always wanted to do that. And I'll tell you, it wasn't until I quit partying and drinking and acting stupid that I was able to get on stage and tell a joke. I was busy in my 20s. I had to, I just sort of, well, it was a big lesbian thing going on on the West Coast, and I kind of followed my vagina around town wherever it went. And then one day I sort of got my senses, put away the alcohol, and six months later I'm on stage and it almost felt like destiny or something. Wow. I was in the right time, I guess. How did you know that it was destiny when you stood up on that stage? And how did you prepare yourself for that very first time? Well, the only way I could say it was destiny is because I always wanted it. But I was too afraid, too shy in that way. I mean, I could clown around with friends. But then I found... Uh, in high school theater and directed a couple of school plays and it was just um oh this is a high being up here and applauding and and people just kept saying you're funny read the phone book we'll laugh and so I, 
I just said, okay. So I tried to make up characters and and most of my jokes were dirty jokes, of course. When I was a little kid, there was this newspaper, uh, an addition to the newspaper called Parade Magazine. You probably have it. All well, you know, country. being 23. I and on the front page, <laughs> yes, on the front inside cover, they had this thing called My Favorite Jokes. And it would be jokes from Milton Berle and, uh, oh, God, you know, Carol Burnett and and I used to cut them out and save them in a suitcase because I knew one day I would need material. <laughs> uh, and I did that as a kid. So it just feels like it's what I'm supposed to be doing. You, when I say dead. Yeah. You were in San Francisco, as you mentioned earlier, and you were involved in the LGBT scene. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like, because, you know, the overwhelming majority of the people watching this podcast may have heard about this time, may have, you know, sort of seen Milk or some TV or movie or about it. But it's one thing to see it and imagine it and hear about it. It's another thing to live it. What was it like living it? Um, I was in the East Bay, uh, across the Bay from San Francisco, and... Uh, it was Tom Amiano who was a school teacher at the time and wanted to try some gay comedy, and he was able to get a night at the Valencia Rose, which was a little coffee house on Valencia Street. And he, I think he knew a few people already, Susie Berger and um, Leah Delaria. Well, I get a phone call saying, you want to come tell jokes? And I'm like, well, sure. So I'm in the city, and... It's just like um, it was packed. I mean, people were dying for gay humor. Mm. They hadn't heard us on stage talking about our lifestyle, our vaginas, and, you know, all the things we love to talk about, um, and being ourselves. And people just kept coming and coming, and more and more young people were coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, I'm funny, I can tell a joke. And then the next thing you know, there's Margaret Gomez and, you know, Karen Williams is on the scene. And it just grew uh, like natural. Um, of course, the AIDS epidemic hit there in the early 80s. And that was difficult. That was not funny. That was sitting in a room full of young guys with, um, you know, sunken eyes and losing their hair. And you just, uh, you just rise to the occasion, you know, and make them laugh. And then there was fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser. Um, and then there were guys with AIDS coming out saying, I want to be a comedian. I want to tell AIDS jokes. You know, I mean, it was just like, there's this stupid joke. Okay. In the state of Texas, if you owned a home, this is back in the eighties. If you owned a home and you sell your home, you must inform the new tenants that the former tenants had AIDS. Why? Why? I figured, well, let's say you have AIDS and you have sex on the kitchen floor and you get some <laughs> semen on the kitchen floor and the new people move in and they have sex on the kitchen floor right where that semen is. I mean, I could have believed some of the bullshit. Then KQED decides to do a safe sex uh 
public announcement. So they take a banana and they are demonstrating for all of us here in the Bay Area who get that channel how to probably put a condom oh on the banana. Because I'm sure there's a lot of young people no. or men that didn't know. Well, the Banana Federation, um, I don't know, it was out of South America, threatened to sue KQED because they used a banana wow. as a penis and not a cucumber or something. <laughs> I don't know if there's a cucumber federation, but so there was just like all this kind of stuff was going on. And we're trying to make fun of it because, come on, it's a public yeah. health. Anyway. I want to step back. So it was kind of crazy. Now, I want to step back a little bit. And before we talk about that particular era in more detail, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you said that I'd like to dive in a little more, more deeply into. We'll talk about the early yeah. days of the Valencia Rose. You, you indicated that a lot of why this grew, I'm sort of gathering, was because there was a need that people felt for them to be able to hear comedy that they related to or that connected to their own self-expression as LGBTQ people. Yes. Why would that have been the case? What was the comedy scene like, particularly the stand-up comedy scene like? on the outside of that world? Why exactly was there that need? Was there active discrimination? What were the dominant comedians and the vibes like at the dominant comedy clubs at that time? You know, I wasn't necessarily a big comedy club person, but it was very straight. And gay was something you could make fun of. You, you would make fun of fat people, gay people, black people. I mean... There wasn't a political awareness uh, to some extent. I mean, and some comedians were vicious. I remember going to the other cafe, and I'm listening to Bobby Slayton. Now, this is in the late 70s, and he's talking about being arrested, you know, by a gay cop, and the cop put the handcuffs on himself. Well, I must say that's kind of funny, but at the time, I'm sitting in the room, I'm like, Oh, mm -hmm. I'm the only gay person here, and they're just cracking up about these gay mm -hmm. And I did not feel safe at the time. I mean, Tom Amiano talks about that, too, trying to go into some of the clubs where it was predominantly all straight. I didn't bother with the straight clubs. I kind of could care less. Suddenly, the Valencia Rose was a place where the gay comedians come in, and we didn't want the straight comedians for a while. It was like our place. Right. They had hundreds of places to go. Right. So now we have a place. Well, of course, we're bigger than they are, and eventually the door was open for everyone. Um, but uh, it was safe, and it was ours. It was kind of like, you know, those old women-only cafes. People would go, oh, that's yeah. weird. But women want to just leave us alone for just an <laughs> hour, <laughs> and let's have our own spot. Let me, let's, let's just commiserate among ourselves. And So that's kind of what the rose was. And um, and, of course, all kinds of people came through there, not just Whoopi, but Sinbad. Um, and then, oh, God, you know, Romanowski and Phillips. And anyone who was coming to town that was funny or coming up from L.A., they would try to get a few minutes. That's amazing. Yeah. When it first it started up, did any of the founders have any idea that this is 
where it would end up or did they imagine it would always be sort of a, a niche location focusing on a niche audience? You know, I can't really speak for the founders. I think they were very excited that this happened. And uh, I mean, Ron Lanza was full of energy and was always looking for new talent and new ideas. And, um, you know, I don't know what they thought as far as that goes. I just know they'd give me a call every couple of weeks and I'd come back in and it was just too much fun. <clears throat> um, you know, and the city needed a place and it became a the place besides, you know, we had the AIDS clinics and we had, you know, coffee houses, but because it really was just a little coffee house, you know, with a sandwich and a, you know, a cup of tea. You mentioned, though, that at one point, as everyone with any knowledge of history knows, and maybe some of the people watching this don't know, which is totally fine, too that the AIDS epidemic landed in the Bay Area, as it did throughout the rest of the country. And it first and foremost hit the gay male community in large urban areas, which was a large part of your audience. What was the yeah. vibe like as that was emerging? And how did your comedy and the comedy of the community that you were in adapt to it and change? And did that affect your purpose or mission as a comedian at all? Uh, yes. Um, the, uh, in the beginning, it was fear. We were all terrified. You know, it's like, can I, can I hug mm -hmm. my gay male friends? And every lesbian is thinking, oh, shit, did I sleep with a guy last week? <laughs> Uh, and everyone was getting tested. And um, so lots of humor was coming out about safe sex. I mean, you know, men had all kinds of condoms, Trojan, Chic, Magnum, Fiesta. I mean, it sounded like a party, all these brand names. And women, they had a little thing called the dental dam. And it was like, what? This little square piece of plastic. And you're like, what if my girlfriend is bigger than that? You know what I'm saying? It's like, and... So, I mean, I and we, we people, gloves were flying off the shelf. Everyone's getting latex gloves. And and then I thought, well, maybe I'll wear a garbage bag. So I made a joke about putting on a garbage bag. You know, put two holes in the bottom and put it on. It's like the world's biggest <laughs> condom. And um, we tried to have fun with it, you know, given that's what humor does. You know, you try to turn some of that absolute pain into humor and and to laugh at ourselves and um but there were there were times when there was a, a general fear and then finally science got more and more informed you know if you want to at least you know a peck on the cheek right. or something you're not gonna die okay because i mean yeah, people were hysterical, but that's how they are with COVID too, I suppose. Not you just don't know right. until we get the facts. Um, I was, um, I remember my improv troupe. I was doing some improv, some comedy, and I was with Danny Williams, and we were doing a show at uh, University of California. There's a place called the Bears Lair right there in Berkeley on campus, 
and it was a gay comedy event. So I do my comedy, and the girls do theirs, and then Danny Williams comes up, and he does his, and of course he's fabulous. Well, after the show, he goes over to the bar uh, to get a beer, and these, you know, football jocks type come over, and they go, hey, fag, you should leave, because we don't want to get it. And he's like, what, wit, (laughs) charm? (laughs) You know, a sense of humor? So... Even, you know, when he was attacked, he, we all rose to the occasion to go, you know, stop this bullshit. And he was a quick enough thinker, you know, to to fight back against, yeah, that's just one little example, but did that answer your question? One thing that you mentioned a little earlier, too, that I'd like to hear a little bit more about is the experience that you referenced of looking at the audience and seeing people that had their hair falling out, that were visibly sick, that were physically deteriorating or suffering the ravages of this terrible disease. When you first started doing comedy, you mentioned earlier, right? That you felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You were up there on the stage and there was this sense of connection to your purpose. Did that change when you were up there standing at an looking at an audience who were facing things that may have been entirely different than that audience that you were standing in front of right when you first began doing stand up um hmm you know um fortunately my comedy is i think broad enough inclusive enough even though it's heavy gay there's some generic stuff um i didn't think of i wanted to be someone who was necessarily rich and famous i mean i wouldn't have turned down ellen degeneres's job i suppose but you know i was convinced that wait this is way too much pressure and that i was more of a community local mm-hmm. kind of comic um it was more grassroots i I wasn't big on flying cross country and and going to all these things. Um, and you just, uh, it, it made me want to make them laugh more because I knew they wouldn't be here in a month. I mean, there were endless numbers of gay men in the community, endless, and women. And um, then, of course, can't, women's breast cancer hit the Bay Area. Some it was the late 80s. I can't tell you how many shows I did to raise money for, you know, Women's Resource Center and and battered women's shelters. And um, you just go in, you try to make them laugh, and you hope that for 20, 30 minutes, an hour, they forgot, you know, uh, what was in front of them with regards to their health or... Um, yeah, I guess it was a purpose. I mean, it was my purpose. I mean, that's all I wanted to do when I was a kid. And the idea of making people laugh just made me happy <laughs> as a client. <laughs> it just, so that's, I just went on my little mission and, um, and did that and made fun of art. I'd made a lot of fun of our community too. And said, look, let's hold a mirror up and look how bizarre <laughs> we're being. Okay. You can't. You know, it's okay to eat white bread sometimes, you guys. You know, you don't have to just, like, eat nine-grain bread all the time. Or, you know, it, 
you know, a little piece of meat won't kill, <laughs> but it might, but I just, I was reflecting back uh, to all that was trying to go on at the times and say, can we, can yeah. we find some sanity here? Yeah. Is that what I'm saying? You are always, there's no right or wrong answer. What I want to get is, is what's coming out of your mind and what you're feeling in your heart that the questions might raise. Good. There we go. You know, how did you see, particularly as the AIDS epidemic moved on and as the eighties progress shifts in the comedy culture around the treatment of LGBTQ people? It was gradual, but more and more clubs would open their doors. You would have mm. women's night, or once in a while you'd have gay night. I mean, it wouldn't be all the time. And then we started seeing more gays on TV, and um, uh, and that whole progression. Uh, and, you know, and people, everyone was waving a, a flag saying, I was the very first gay comedian on this show, and I was the first gay comedian, and I was the first this, and I was the first that. And, I mean, it, it all was sort of happening all around the country. It was, a you know, and this came, I think, the women's movement had a lot to do with this. And, you know, the whole feminist movement, women were pushing and, and, um, and, there was a, a coming together when these guys got sick. It was a mm -hmm. bunch of lesbians, a lot of lesbians mm -hmm. who were taking care of them. Uh, endless nurses and hospitals. And um, even though at first we were like, those are boys, we're girls. You stay on that side of the room. With that mm -hmm. changed during that epidemic. And there was a big uniting in many ways of, yeah. wait, we need each other, you know, there's too much yeah. hate out there. Um, and Harvey Milk did a lot of good work and and other gay politicians, and we were going, wow, we're getting elected to offices. And, um, and so anyway, comedy, um, it just became almost normal gradually. To have a gay character on a TV show. Um, there was a show. Was it L.A. Law? I'll never forget. Um, L.A. Law had two women kiss on the TV show. And this was early for this to happen. And L'Oreal was one of the sponsors. And L'Oreal says, uh, if you continue this gay characters, I'm gonna, we're going to wow. pull out. And I, I wrote L'Oreal a letter on L'Oreal. That is so stupid. First of all, lesbians are hairier than the average woman. And we use a lot of L'Oreal products. You know, we're not shaving everything, okay? Uh, well, <laughs> it's to your advantage, you know, to stay on. So that was the letter I wrote to them, but. It was like that. Sponsors were going, we're dropping you because two women kissed. Ooh. Well, I've got to ask, though, did L'Oreal respond to your letter? And if so, what did they say? <laughs> no. No. That's very disappointing. <laughs> no, <sorry. laughs> yes. And those gay characters stayed on TV. I mean, if you're doing gay characters in Hollywood and once the door is open, it's like, I'm sorry. But 
there's a strong gay community yeah. in Hollywood. So, and in the film industry, all you know, and all the arts. When Ellen came out on TV, do you believe that that had um, the sort of seismic impact on the visibility of LGBT? comedians um that it that people assume that it did and did it have any sort of um transformative effect in the stand-up comedy world outside of television it did not affect um hmm i can't say it affected me or the the Bay Area or the West Coast that much. I mean, I honestly don't know the rest of the country. I mean, if you're in a cave in Oklahoma, maybe this is a, a new a new thing for you, you know? And Oprah was having all kinds of gay people on TV and gay parents. And um, so for me and my community, it didn't seem like such a new big thing. Um, I... I suppose it did. She considers herself a trendsetter, and I think a lot of people do think that. I mean, Ellen didn't come out until mm -hmm. she made her first million, you know, and that mm -hmm. was true with Rosie O'Donnell. They were gay all along, gay, 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 gay. And they were doing television and talk shows and stuff, but never, never. But once you made that first mm -hmm. million, then they decided to come out. A lot of mm -hmm. us came out from the gate. Now, maybe I have attitude here, but there's a pocket of us in San Francisco we didn't wait to make money. We came out because that's what Harvey mm -hmm. Milk told us to do. Harvey said, come out, come out. So we all came out and uh, with our art forms, and that was that. And I think some of us suffered uh, to some extent as far as mm -hmm. the broader media because television was still pretty narrow, narrow-minded. Um, and... And that's okay. Now, it's not that way now. I mean, now you're seeing television studios seeking out gay people, you know, right. for this role or that role or this commercial. And um, But they, were, they didn't want yeah. us back then. Karen, right. in light of the prejudices that people who came out of the closet as comedians or in other forms of the arts, particularly the performing arts, um, during that time period before and before they made their million, um, do you think that they and you would consider yourselves activists as well as comics or other performers? I've always considered myself an activist, yeah. We were having fun and we were activists, yeah. I mean, I guess it's sort of like street theater people you know you, you pass the hat and that's your salary you're yeah you're an activist absolutely um i could not i mean I, this sounds stupid i could not believe people wouldn't like me <laughs> I, i've had that problem too you know um it just um I think I lost track of the question, but yeah, I was an activist. Absolutely. And my humor, I think, would reflect that. Um, there was there was a, a little play I wrote called Waiting for FEMA. Uh, this was after the mm -hmm, New Orleans mm -hmm. floods, yeah. Hurricane Katrina. And I guess... 
the way I could describe activists is in this little play, there's two women stuck on a roof, and they're screaming, and they see junk floating by and dead bodies, and because um, that to me was one of the biggest, most, I can't even tell you what Katrina did to me. But anyway, so a helicopter comes by. And they're waving, oh, helicopter, save us, right? Well, it just so happens around that same time, floating past them is a big bag. And the woman pulls it out, and it's mm -hmm. full of money because some of the casinos mm -hmm. were flooded. And this was a huge bag of money. And she's like, oh, my God, look at this money. And the helicopter is hovering, and they lower a basket. And they're saying, that basket's too small for a human. We need a bigger basket. And they're going, like, put the money in the basket. Yeah. And you're like, what? Mm. Put the money in the basket. Yeah. <laughs> so we put the money in the basket yeah. and the helicopter flies away. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so it's these kind of stories I try to tell. You know, or like uh, the Humonga Mart Depot. Imagine Halliburton and Walmart merge and they become a department store. Okay. You know, so, and I'm an old lady trying to sabotage this big department store. I could go on, but yes, I'm an actor. Do you view, in terms of your life purpose, being an activist first or funny? Oh, that's a good question. Um, if I don't think it's funny, I won't tell it. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I do try to say things that kind of tweak people a little and pisses them <laughs> off. Um, like in the early days, so many of us, we, we dress like men. A lot of dykes, we dress like men. Uh, that was the uniform, plaid shirt, jeans, and boots, because, you know, it's our work yeah. clothes because we had work to do. And um, I would say, well, is it okay to hate <sighs> men but dress just <laughs> like them? And uh, yeah, how did they react? Is that funny? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, well, okay, we're dressing just like guys, <laughs> but we hate them. <laughs> so anyway time went by and we stopped hating them but you know uh, just those kinds of things uh, just trying to wake people up again hold a mirror I guess the purpose is activism because I realize things and then I think oh I should share that you know with other people and it yeah. comes out funny um like now I'm old, you know, and I I thought, well, I'll start dating again. It's been a while. And I meet this woman, I go, look, I'm 70. I don't have time to wine and dine, okay? You want to just get intimate. She says, well, what'd you have in mind? I said, well, would you cut my toenails? I can't reach them anymore. Uh, you know, so these are, this is yeah. real life stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. Karen, what would you say to someone, let's say she's a young queer woman 
who wants to be the next Karen Ripley, but she just feels like, you know, it might be too hard or she's nervous that there will be a place for her out there or she might be struggling to find her voice. Would you have any advice for someone like that? Um, well, it's a different landscape now, but I spent a lot of time flying by the seat of my pants. I think if you want to be a comedian, uh, not only do you want to be a good writer and get lots of experiences in your life, because for me, that's where the humor comes from. Every time I travel or do something new, I get ideas. Um, no marketing. Mm. First of all, marketing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, you know. A lot of people don't know who I am because I did not have a major marketing right. thing going on. Um, I didn't know exactly where all the places were in the early days to go. You know, I was forever searching. Uh, on the, And fortunately, there were enough gay, other gay comics that were very giving and loving and shared the information. Um, it was very supportive in the early days. But... Um, you just hang around the clubs. You, I mean, nowadays they get on like this, the podcasts and the Zooms and uploading. I don't, I, I didn't do that. And I, I really still don't do that. Um, no, there's a place out there. It's just going to be a little harder. See, when I started doing gay comedy, there were only yeah. a few of us. Really, there were only a few gay comics that I knew that were actually out and about. And it was kind of cool being, oh, I'm kind of unique. <laughs> Look at here. <laughs> you know? And now they're a dime a dozen. And I'm like, I liked it when I was unique. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, just keep writing. Just get a, put it in bite-sized pieces. You know, get a business card. Get a headshot, and then a week later, write a joke, you know, and then make a few phone calls, and a week later, write another joke. I mean, you just it it builds, it just builds, you know. Talk to us a little bit about what you see for yourself in the future. Talk to us about any projects you have on going right now. Talk to us about where people can find you online and. And tell me, is it true that there is a documentary film that's hitting the film festival circuit right now and winning awards that you are heavily featured in? Why, yes, there is. Actually, I have this right here. Um, this lovely That's item. it? And it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yes, that was so much fun. And um, uh, it's a unique time. It was a unique time. And it cannot be forgotten in our history. Um, like all the big gay events, you know. I remember Tom came up to me one day and said, um, Oh, I have this friend. He's making a quilt. Uh, and I'm like, Really? <laughs> My mom makes quilts. He goes, no, 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 it's AIDS quilt. And I'm like, an AIDS quilt. And I re I didn't know what he was talking about. And he goes, well, they need someone to tell jokes. And I go, okay, I'll tell jokes for these guys making quilts. 
Well, then I realized it was, I'm slow sometimes, it was AIDS quilt. No, what's coming up for me is uh, I'm working with David Ford at the Marsh. Or I'm reworking a, a, a show or play, I don't know what it is yet, called uh, Memories mm -hmm. of Resistance. And this is not particularly funny. I've been writing more and more monologues and trying to short stories. Not that I get bored with comedy, but uh, I'm not out and about in the comedy scene like I used to be. I'm not traveling like I used to be. And so my brain is focusing more on uh, just doing my work in a different way. So um, this play is, and I know this woman. I met a woman years ago. I was in a relationship with her daughter. Uh, at the age of 15, she was in Denmark when the Nazis occupied Denmark, and they mm. killed her father, and she joined the resistance, skinny little Danish girl, and she smuggled wow. Jews out of Denmark because um, she was very familiar with the, right. the landscape wow. and all the villages and so on. And she did this countless numbers of time, literally like lying on their wow. stomach for hours, crawling out wow. to the boats. Um, and it blows my mind, uh, the stories she used to tell and the things I've read. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have texting. You know, how do you know who to trust? You know, you're like... And, yeah. and does this mean you you know are you Norwegian are you right. Danish are you a Nazi? Um, and part of this idea came to me well because the story has haunted me all along. But in the early part of the Trump um, years, there was so much resistance. Everyone had a bumper sticker out here that said "Resist, resist, resist." And I thought, well, how do you resist? And and what is it where resist? Okay, let's get... And, you know, do you have some little underground club or uh, like these... Anyway, this is my brain scattered, but this is a story about mm -hmm. resistance mm -hmm. in the 40s when, you know, I mean, imagine these white supremacists take over right. D.C. Yeah. Okay. And you're like, yeah. uh, I got to resist. What do you do? Yeah. Get them out of here. Uh, so this is where I'm at now, which is obviously different than funny. But I intend to make this kind of funny. There's got to be humor in there somewhere. Uh, you know, someone trips over the dog. I don't know. Yeah. Something funny will happen. So, <laughs> so I'm chipping away at that. But uh, otherwise, I'm really not doing too much comedy. I would consider myself semi-retired and... Uh, um, just grateful that I got to be included, uh, and that I will live on in history. Stand up, stand out <laughs> is the name of the documentary for those who might just be listening to yeah. it. And yes. it is a history of yeah. uh, the early LGBTQ comedy movement in San Francisco, including a lot of discussion about the Valencia Rose, which you shared with us earlier in this interview as well, Karen. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, David, um, Pavlovsky, Pavlovsky. 
Is he Polish? He is not. We don't know exactly what his background is, but we're pretty sure it's not Polish. I think it might be Ukrainian, maybe Czech. Ah. Well, he was one of the nicest, most respectful people I've worked with. He'd come to town and he goes, I'm in town. Can I take you to dinner? And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Well, as a matter of full disclosure, he is my husband. (laughs) So, yeah. so anyone listening to oh. this will know. Um, they won't look up the film and be shocked later that um, she's telling me about this nice, polite person, and I'm acting surprised, knowing full well that I'm married to him. <laughs> yes, and he, he is. is. Nice. Yes. Karen, it has been wow. amazing having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've totally enjoyed this walk down memory lane and discovered a few things and we're glad to we're glad to have discovered them with you and for everyone tuning in make sure that you join us next time for another episode of scott mason's purpose highway thank you for listening to today's episode join our community today at purposehighway.com and subscribe to get notified when new episodes go live scott mason checking out